You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I'm going to be the host on today's episode. I'm Dr. Mike Brazier, and I'm joined in studio here by a good friend of mine, a professional colleague, Dr. Jared Henson from nearby Christian Brothers University. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Mike, thanks for having me. You know, this is another episode that we, we've we gotten pretty, I, I guess, fond of doing these, and I, I think our listeners are pretty pretty pleased with them as well. They fall into our species profile category. It's where we take a a species of duck, goose, or swan, and we go in depth on it. All different parts of its life history, its description, harvest, conservation, etc. That's one of the things that we've kind of figured out about the people that that like Ducks Unlimited, our members, our supporters. They like ducks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On our website, our magazine, they like hearing about ducks. And the species that we're going to talk about today is a really intriguing one. It's one of the more exciting stories and interesting stories in all of waterfowl in, in North America. And, and it's an upbeat story, you could say, and, and we always welcome those. Now, I want to, before we get into this, it's going to be the black-bellied whistling duck, I guess, to kind of just lay it out there for people to get excited about. Before we get into it, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are right now, and where you came from. Well, I uh, am now a uh, associate professor at Christian Brothers University, which is a small Catholic school here in Memphis, uh, primarily an undergrad institution. Um, I finished my Ph.D. at University of Memphis in 2017, uh, and then I come from Arkansas for an undergrad. So I guess that's kind of what brought me here. I'm now chasing whistling ducks around. All right, good. We'll come back and revisit some of your like childhood days, some of your personal interest, and your kind of career path a little bit later on. But that's a, a brief introduction. I appreciate that. And, you know, Christian Brothers University out is, is uh, I grew up in North Mississippi, and I had not heard of it whenever I started. I get, Well, whenever you got there, you started doing duck research, and then it got on the map for me, right? I, I am the duck guy there. Yes, <laughs> yes. The only one. Uh, we do, it's an undergrad institution, as I kind of said. We uh, we do all undergrad research. Mm-hmm. So all of the projects, everything we've been doing has been done with undergrads. And it's a way to get students out and get them hands-on in the field before we send them off to hopefully graduate school or even some of them just a professional program like med school or something and they've dabbled in something a little different and got a taste of a different type of science and hopefully garnered a, uh, a love for for wildlife and waterfowl. Yeah, and I know there's starting to be a little bit of a sort of family tree 
that's, that emerges from CBU within the waterfowl profession. There's some of your, your former undergraduates have gone on to, uh, to graduate school at other universities. And, and I'm not going to ask you to start naming names because then there's always the risk of leaving someone out of that. But what I will say is, you know, with regard to the undergraduate research that y'all do there, we had an opportunity earlier this summer to go out with you in the field, we're, we're recording this episode here in, what is it, the first day of September, 2022. And so earlier this year, we had an opportunity to go out with you and, and some of your undergraduate students that were actively doing some of this research on black-bellied whistling ducks here around Memphis. We took our, our film crews, and some of the folks listening to this may have seen those episodes. I think uh, Campus Waterfowl also had an episode, but DU had an episode. I think it was out on YouTube. It was real popular and even had some... We, we were even fortunate enough to arrive at one of those nest boxes at a time when when the they had, they had hatched. hatched you know, right, so. yeah, like an 18-hour window. You got lucky there. Yeah, that was pretty cool. So appreciate you setting it up for us that way. <laughs> they got back. They returned the call, and, yeah, and we yeah. set up the, the appointment for sure. Yeah, so I, I guess with that sort of introduction talking about the university, and we may come back to some of that. I know we'll come back to some of the research that your undergraduates are doing right now, but I want to jump into this, this species, and, and we have a list of things that we're going to cover. Uh, but the first thing... Black-bellied whistling ducks, uh, yeah, the, the black-bellied whistling duck is is unique, I guess, in so many different ways. And let's just kind of start out taxonomically. Where does it fall? What are some of the other more closely related species for, for that bird? Yeah, they are uh, very different from what most people, at least that in North America, would consider ducks. They're actually more closely related to swans and geese than they are to other ducks. I guess they get thrown in a little bit in the dabbling duck group because they mm. do dabble. They don't dive. <clears throat> uh, but the whistling ducks we have up here are actually a subspecies. Okay. So there's two subspecies of black-bellied whistling duck. There's a northern subspecies and a southern uh, subspecies. Southern subspecies goes all the way down to uh, the north end of Argentina and stops about Central America. Central America up. Now we get the northern subspecies. Um, which is Dendrocygna autumnalis fulgens. Mm. Okay. Now, is that a subspecies recognized? I don't want to get too technical here, but AO, American Ornithological Society do not, does not recognize, do not recognize a subspecies. So, right. okay, so if, you, if you go into AOS, American Ornithological Society checklist of North American birds, it's just going to be black-bellied whistling duck. Yep. And what about relatives? What are some of the other close relatives for that species, like, say, within the whistling duck family? And what makes a whistling duck a whistling duck or a, a tree duck, one of the other names? Yeah, formerly for known tree duck, Dendrocygna, means tree swan. That's the genus. Long, lanky legs. And the, the key feature that most people that have seen one before will go, that's weird. There's a duck sitting on a fence or in a tree which is a weird place to see a duck, um, even on top of a power pole or something like that. That's always a wild place to see them. So they don't fly similarly to most other ducks. They're uh, a lot, lot slower flyer, long legs, you know, pink bill, pink feet for the whistling ducks. Um, legs hang out behind them when they fly, so they're not tucked up like you would think with another duck or other duck species. They kind of fly more like a wading bird, like an ibis or something like that, more than they do like a duck slow flapping flight. Um, they have a pretty unique flight. Once you've seen them and identified them a few times, it, it's pretty easy, especially if you hear the whistle as well, right? right. But but even that flight pattern, uh, people can get a pretty good sense of what it is, right? Yes. And then um, <clears throat> common or other whistling duck species in North America, we'll see fulvus is about the only other one that we'll get into. North America, 
the Americas, though, we also get white-faced whistling ducks and West Indian. Yeah, and those in the Caribbean. In the Caribbean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, let's see. Anything else about the appearance uh, or anything unique about it that you that that you usually describe or, or touch on whenever you're talking about this bird? Big thing: pink feet, pink bill. That's a standout. Obviously, black belly, hence the name. Yeah. And then they also have that big white wing bar down the middle of the uh, <clears throat> major coverts on their wings. So it's a really nice stark contrast, these big white stripes up and down the wings as they fly. Um, and then when they're sitting, that white really contrasts against the black belly. So they pop when you see them. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What I want to do here, see if I can get this to work. We've talked about the appearance and one of the other diagnostic I guess, um, characteristics that I've referenced already is the call and it's, you know, whistling duck, right? And so I think we're going to try and see if this will work here. I've got the the phone Bluetoothed into our our audio. So tell us about this call. It's just a a location call that you would normally hear. Um, One of the more characteristic calls that people will hear? Most characteristic, yeah. You'll hear that one as they fly by. You hear it when they are out just standing they they're pretty talkative yeah yeah they are you know, for sure right. and then so then here's another one that you were telling me that people will oftentimes hear uh, if they're in larger groups yep they'll get to go on that they get worked up chat um, and they also make just a whole bunch of like little chuckles too when they get excited is that it that says this is, yeah. this is an alarm call. It, kinda, but they also have more of just another like little chuckle that's not quite that excited. But yeah. Okay. That they you don't want to. You don't want to. try to. I don't whistle that well. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I won't. <laughs> I won't push you on that. But you know, once you hear that, once you see those birds, they're 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 memorable. Yes, you'll never forget that sound once you hear it. Once you you pick it up. And and so this bird is unique. Uh, I'll say that probably half a dozen or more times as we go through this conversation in terms of unique aspects of it. But it's one of those species in North America that's kind of geographically restricted. And so not everyone on the continent will have even maybe heard about it or certainly not seen it, right? Right. Uh, But that is increasingly changing. And that is one of the most fascinating aspects of this story about black-bellied whistling ducks. So uh, talk to us about that in terms of the distribution, uh, how it has changed, what it was historically. I remember and moved to Lafayette, Louisiana in 2005, and that was just, what, 17 years ago. And my goodness, the distribution of those birds now relative to then is incredibly different. But talk to us about that from a historical perspective. Where were these birds found? What's happening with them now? Where can they now be found? Yeah, historically, a lot of people know of them as a Mexican duck or a Mexican tree duck. That's kind of a, a nickname they have, and that's what a lot of people will still call them when they see one. They're native to Mexico, Central America, and then South America, but they've been moving north. I think in the 40s, one study put their northern range limit at the Rio Grande River. So just to think 1940, nothing above that. And then probably about 2000s when you were in Lafayette, you were starting to see probably quite a few of them along the Gulf Coast at that point. Early 2000s, we start to see them really start showing up around the Gulf Coast, Houston, Texas area, uh, all the way up through to New Orleans. And then... There's another population that supposedly started in Florida, possibly, that may be a, an escaped population from somebody's aviary or something like that, but they've worked up into the Carolinas now. Uh, in Memphis, we saw our first uh, whistling ducks. There's been some vagrant records in the past, but in 2008, we had eight of them show up. 
So not too long ago, 14 years. Now we've got about 250 on wow. the same site. Wow. Uh, and we see them. I get reports all the time from Michigan, Iowa, Illinois, people seeing a pair of whistling ducks up there. Somebody sent me a picture two years ago from Ontario. Mm-hmm. So Canada, they they show up all over the place. Breeding-wise, as far as where you actually see them distributing and actually having breeding populations large enough to do much, you might see a pair breed in Iowa, a pair breed in Illinois. They, I think there's a few pairs that are they're popping up in southern Illinois now, but Memphis is about as far north as you see a large breeding population. And when I say large, I mean we're talking 250 birds, not a big population. But you get down to Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge New Orleans, now you're seeing thousands. I mean there's one park in New Orleans where you can go and in the winter see 15, 16,000 whistling ducks sometimes. Yeah, it was funny whenever we posted that video on our social media platforms, we went out in the, from the research little video, and I think we included that subheading about research into the northernmost, the largest northernmost breeding population of black-bellied whistling ducks, and uh, immediately people started saying, oh, well, I saw two here, and I saw these here, and I saw these here, right. Minnesota, Ontario, just as you, as you said, and... I think our statement, our description still stands, though. It's still largest, like, right. still like largest breeding population, largest, largest northernmost, right? Population. And that's why we chose that. And that's there's an, yeah, there's another population in Kansas around the Cheyenne Bottoms, okay. which is a little further north than us, but it's like 40 birds. Okay. So I was careful before I made that yeah, statement. Yeah, right. No, that's all you good. don't want people coming back after right. you. Right. <laughs> Do you have any numbers there uh, regarding kind of the increase in in population size? I, I you and I were kind of doing our independent research on this species, and by that I mean we were reading, reading reference right. material here over the past couple of days. Uh, and there's a there's an, a number out there a range with regard to what the total population size is, but there's also something in here about the rate of increase in this population size that Texas during their midwinter survey had been seeing these. Do you have that here? I'm trying to find it here. In front I didn't of me. get the rate of increase per se. Um, because the best tool we have to measure them is actually the Christmas bird count. Oh, okay. All right. Because that's about the only way I have seen where they get decent counts. Okay. And I, actually, I found um, it here. It's like but, 7% annual increase, something like in that. In Texas, in South okay, Texas, that was Texas, right? Yeah. You know, so we don't know if birds this far north, though, are going to be, you know, their population's increasing at that same rate. Uh, it, because of the change in latitude, the change in habitat, we just don't know here um that's probably a good model because of their gregarious nature i mentioned this i think we were talking about this before the podcast you know they had a big avian disease outbreak in 2020 that really hit uh, the population in the louisiana gulf coast it was an avian cholera outbreak um, and that knocked them back a little bit but uh native range in in uh in mexico they said at one point i think it was like in 2010, it was about 80,000. Yeah. And that population's dropping. Oh, really? Due to habitat loss as well, oh, what okay. I've been reading. So, But we think that the, the growth we're seeing is actual population growth and not just a redistribution? Yes. Oh, okay. Right, right. They're, they're definitely successful in these landscapes. Yeah. Um, and we can show a little bit of that from Memphis, you know, the, the rate of increase uh, as far as how many eggs are hatching. I mean, I think the last two years we've had a hundred fledged ducklings a year yeah. out of just our 50 boxes. 
Yeah. Well, I want to let's go ahead and jump into that. Some of the breeding ecology of this species because it's also pretty interesting in that regard. They're a cavity nester. Just kind of introduce us, but they'll also nest on the ground. I know y'all found they that. Will. But, but talk to us about that breeding ecology of these birds. What's unique about it? What's fascinating as a researcher? Why is it? Why is it so exciting to study? Is for the people that may not know about breeding ecology of these black belly twistling ducks. Give us the story. Very different. Um, more goose-like and swan-like than duck-like. They pair for life. Right? That's pretty unique among the, quote, ducks. Ducks, right. Um, <clears throat> both male and female incubate. And that's unique pretty much among it's waterfowl worldwide. Just, just a tree ducks. Okay. Tree ducks are about the only ones that, that incubate. Um, and then, as you mentioned, they're cavity nesters primarily, but they will nest on the ground if habitat's not available. They readily take to wood duck boxes. Yeah. Readily. And that's what we found really quick. And that's where a lot of uh, comments I've gotten and you've probably gotten about them is like, oh, I found a pair in my Mm -hmm. wood duck box in my pond or something like that. And there's a lot of questions wrapped up around that as well. People are like, are they out competing wood ducks for those boxes? And there's some studies ongoing to try to look into that. And um, We're looking at that. Y'all are as well? Okay. All right. Uh, Let's see. Anything else about the mating system, breeding ecology, uh, timing of the year? What's what's all that look like? And do they migrate from breeding area to wintering area? I realize migration is sort of a separate deal, but anything else about breeding ecology? Right. You know, so... Basic stuff. Uh, average clutch, 14 birds, but or 14 eggs. And then uh, incubation is about 30 days. Fledgling period is another two months. But they'll stay in family groups for six months before mom and dad will you know, actually send them out on their own. So they, the, the parental care, parental effort in these is, is quite a bit more than you would see with a lot of other ducks. Yeah. And, and you know, why they evolved f- for that I mean, was it a tropical thing? You think there's some kind of... Because they're not like a huge bird. You know, a lot of times when you think about the species of waterfowl that mate for life, they're larger and that provide that by parental care. They're larger bodied birds where it kind of makes more sense for for both of them to, to stick around because they can... The male can act as, you know, physical defense, right? Right. But a black-bellied whistling duck, not very intimidating. What What's the, well, what's the thought there? They're aggressive. Okay. I've watched them run mallards off of bait piles and stuff. Okay. I mean, they'll, they'll, and they're about the same, you know, weight wise, they weigh like a pound less than yeah. a mallard, but they stand about the same height yeah. as a mallard. Uh, as far as the evolution behind that, it goes back to, I think, just being more closely related to an ancestral species that had that parental care behavior. And would that be than, like of tropical origin, kind of related to probably, variability? And, I mean, in their breeding range, it literally, they'll breed from March to September. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be more characteristic of a tropical species right. that's tied to uh, geographies that don't necessarily have defined, quote, breeding and wintering uh, periods some, of the year, right? Something we're seeing up here. They don't have an off switch. Yeah. I mentioned a 30-day incubation. Two months before they fledge on top of that. So you're three months from the first egg or that last egg being laid and then them actually being able to fly and they're laying clutches in August. Yeah. Wow. So a matter of fact, I had a lady uh, contact me last night that said she has a wood duck or no wood duck, a whistling duck duckling that she found in Midtown Memphis Hmm. that her cat brought in. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you don't like to hear that. That hatched yesterday. Oh, wow. It, it, the, the, she sent me a picture of the ducklings, like maybe three, four days old. Wow. That's incredible. So. That's incredible. Um, 
you mentioned a few minutes ago the average clutch size is 14. Uh, the educated listeners going to probably think, holy cow, that's large. It's a large clutch size. Now, is that from, is that genetically verified to be from one hen? Because we can do a lot more nowadays with genetic identification, genetic markers. So, no, we haven't gotten into okay. that. That So, ours, our clutch size up here is closer to 13, which is pretty close. But we actually do mark how many eggs per day. Yeah. And they parasitize nests like crazy. So brood parasitism. So other females Same will as wood lay, ducks same in as the cavity nest. Yep. They will lay eggs and other nests like crazy. It's not uncommon for us to see a nest with 40 plus eggs in it. Um, obviously, one female can't incubate that. Right, but, right. Uh, so the average number of eggs in a nest is probably closer to 18, 19. Yeah. But we estimate that about 14 come from one female. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, 13 to 14. And you're collecting information, genetic information to tr try to verify that? We are getting on, yep. Okay. We're collecting eggshells and eggshell membranes yeah, so we can okay. run a DNA analysis okay. on the, the membranes. Yeah. Well, that, that'll that be cool. Um, all right. So we've, yeah, pair formation, mating system, sex ratio on these birds. This is a topic. We'll, we'll cover this kind of briefly because it's, it's one of those uh, interesting discussions that's going on out there regarding some of the other species that we have here in North America where there's – and there's it's always kind of been known that we've – for a lot of these North American duck species, it's a male-biased sex ratio. And there's a lot of people making observations now and there there's the, the, the suggestion, the hypothesis that – sex ratios are, and there's some evidence showing sex ratios are becoming increasingly skewed towards males for some species. I think uh, the jury is still out on that in terms of, you know, definitive conclusions and what the mechanism is there. But let's talk about sex ratio from a black-bellied whistling duck perspective. What do we know there? About half and half. Like from, and from birth, but then all the way up to adulthood. That's the right. one we're looking at it there. Yep, it's and, maintained. And, and is that related to that Mating system, the lifelong pair bonds, we think so? I definitely think that would be driving for that, yeah. Okay. And, yeah, males and females are, are incubating both of those. I'm just trying to think about differential predation, that type right. of stuff. So. yeah. The risk is not just on the female, right, at this point, because that's what gets most females in a dabbling duck yeah. species or something like that. But. One one thing that we, I don't know if we covered, was the appearance similarity between males and females? They're monomorphic. They look alike, and they're a real pain to distinguish in hand. <laughs> yeah, so monomorphic <laughs> means males, females look identical right. in hand and, and on the wing. And I know y'all are trying to figure out ways to more rapidly uh, identify the sex of these birds once you have them in hand. Tell us a little bit about that. So we do field sexing, so you'll have to, you know, just a cloacal sexing or something like that. But we're actually moving on to, they're really tough to do that with. And so especially after reproduction, so we've moved on to where we're doing genetic analysis now. We'll pull a blood sample, and from that blood sample, we can tell real quick. Yeah. That uh, takes a while. You can't identify them right there. Right. We can't do it there, but we can get it back in the lab, and we can have it knocked out in a day. Oh, okay. So well, That's cool. Cool. And then you get a definitive assessment of what that is. Right. There. We're, we, we know for sure at that point. Yeah. All right. Cool. And anything else? We may come back to a few other things. Let's talk about migration a little bit. And we, I think we've touched on this a little bit as we're there um, – given the length of their breeding season. But what do we know about movements of these birds, either from, let's say, uh, you know, something that might be considered a seasonal migration? What what do we know historically, and what are we learning now? Historically, they're not, migra not, not migratory. But our birds here in Memphis, most of them will say that don't stay. You know, we may have 200 or a few more, maybe even 300 at some point in the area, but you might see 20 that might try and stick it out. Hmm. Where do they go? We don't know. We assume 
down the river. We assume the Mississippi River is a major migration corridor for them. I've caught birds up here that Paul Link, Mm -hmm. who has banded a ton of whistling ducks in uh, Louisiana and across the southern states, has banded in New Orleans like three months before. So we know they're coming up and down the river there. Mm -hmm. And Paul has also gotten band recoveries from the same area that we are doing research in. His birds have been recovered up here? His birds have been, no. Oh, oh. They hit cell towers. Oh, so he would then have like the GPS, GSM transmitters on him. Is that right? No, there was a a couple of cell tower workers that actually would find them and report them. Oh, really? Yep. He said one cell tower produced like three or four different birds for him. Oh, okay. Like a a collision. It was a collision. Okay. I see. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Band report rates on these guys are really low. Yeah, I was going to go there next because all the birds that you capture up here as part of your study, you banned them. How many recoveries have you had? Outside of my own recoveries? Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's see, two. No kidding. Two. And were they here local? Most of, one was local. One actually was in St. Louis. During the hunting season? Yep, in September. Wow. So I don't know. No, it wasn't shot. It was found dead. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. We'll leave it at that. But it was a a young bird. It was a first year bird. It was a bird I banded as as a juvenile the year before was found up there. Uh, which is wild to think that they're still going up the river like that. And you're saying, you know, a little bit about migration movements. Yeah. Obviously, they're subtropical species. We keep hitting on that. They're not built to take our winters. Yeah. Um, they don't have a heavy down coat. They don't have a bunch of body fat. So they've got to get out of that. And temperature seems to really drive movement. When you get that first cold snap in October, we'll have a lot of whistling ducks. They'll be gone the next week. Hmm. That really starts to push pretty much all of them out. It warms up early in the spring. Yeah. They appear, but they may appear too early. And then they may get pushed back out by a late frost or a late late winter storm or something like that. I don't know how many times I've seen them show up in February, watching them for a few days, and then we get another cold snap, and bam, they're gone again. And then you'll see them come back when it warms back up. Real sensitive to temperature then. Very much so. And, you know, you look at the bird's appearance, and from a distance you'd think, oh, that's got to be a heavy bird. You know, it's because it's large in stature. But if you've, of course, you've held many in your life, right. and I've I've harvested harvested a few and went out with you and held the bird so that we were doing some work on, and they're just, it's like nothing. Like you said, like what, 800 grams, le- a pound less than a mallard or something? Pound and a half, Eight, yeah. You know, it's, it's like um, maybe equivalent of a shoveler in terms like of body mass, something than a like wood that, duck. you know? And, and so when you've got this larger, this bird that's kind of large in size, but but low in body mass, that you would expect them to be very temperature sensitive, right? Right, right, exactly. And we noticed that our birds are actually smaller than Paul's birds on the Gulf Coast. Really? Yeah. A big bird for us will be maybe a thousand grams, and we've seen one or two birds that big. A big bird for him is 1,100 grams, so the size of a mallard. Wow. What's going on there? Don't know yet. Uh, we don't know. A lot That's of questions. a great question. Still a lot but. of questions. What about, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, a little more about movements because whenever I first, my first introduction to Black Bellies was there on the Gulf Coast, 2005. And at that time, yeah, the birds, we had some birds in South Louisiana. I'm sure their population was starting to grow at that point. Um, but let's say outside of the urban areas, there were a few a few breeders in some of the coastal coastal marshes, and we would go see them in the summer. But then first little cold snap or, or a hint of cold weather, the birds would be gone. And, and the, the story was that they went back to 
coastal Texas and move their way farther down the the, um, the coastline. Uh, is there any, I mean, do we know anything? I know Paul had deployed some GPS transmitters on some birds at one time, and some of the movements that he got back were just astounding. It's like these birds just roam the landscape. But do you remember, was there a, was there a tendency for any kind of uh, majority percentage of those to go back towards Texas, or were they kind of just— They just roamed the winter, as long as the weather's favorable. I think out of that study, what was it, like two actually went down back yeah. into Mexico or something yeah, so like something's that. changed with those birds because that for for a while, that at least that's the story I heard, is that they would move back to coastal Texas. All those birds were kind of going back there, but right. now we're not seeing that. Well, if you look to Well, maybe at, we're still seeing it, but we're seeing a lot of other things too. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the eBird data, which that's an incredible resource just to kind of get movement ideas, if you look at the differences between June and July and December through February distributions, it still seems to be that they're being spread out down, maybe not into Mexico, but definitely all down along the Gulf Coast or majority along the Gulf Coast. I don't think they're going all back to Texas. Mm-hmm. I think Louisiana is plenty warm enough for them. Yeah. And they're finding areas there. Um, as far as like a defining migration, we don't know. One of the big issues is one of the biggest migration, you know, monitoring tools you can use now is a GPS backpack. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. You Tell put, us about that. You, well, right now, there's no good way to put a backpack on a whistling duck because they're cavity nesters. And so they'll hit the cavity, the entrance to say a wood duck box or even the natural cavity. At such a speed, they'll just shatter that backpack unit. So I might have misspoke then. What kind of device was Paul using to track those birds across the internal internal? Okay, all right. So all right, that was back pre. Well, I guess yeah. PTT. That's a coarser resolution tracking device. Right. right? And when you go internal, you can't charge. Yeah. Right. So you get a defined number of pings. Yep. Okay. So all right. Now you mentioned the boxes a little bit. I think we'll come back to their use of boxes and some of the um, uh, some of the uh, some of the. I guess more common questions that people are going to have with respect to kind of what we, what they could do. Uh, do they use wood duck boxes the, to the same dimensions? Do they need to be larger? All that kind of stuff. We'll come back and touch that on, on the on, on the back end. Okay. Uh, I think what I want to do right now is we'll take a break. We'll listen to a few ads, and then we will come back. And I want to talk a little bit more about how you came to study black-bellied whistling ducks. We'll pick it up there, and then we'll get back into some of the other uh, aspects of the ecology of this species. So, sound good? Sounds good. All right. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back. We're sitting here with Dr. Jared Henson of Christian Brothers University. We're going to continue our conversation about black-bellied whistling ducks and everything unique about them. But before we get back into that, I want to ask Jared kind of how he how he developed a fascination with black-bellied whistling ducks. Was it a uh, just a an opportunity that you saw, or did you have some prior 
experience with this bird that made you uh, particularly intrigued. Tell us about that. Well, I've always been fascinated with ducks. Uh, I grew up duck hunting my entire life. I grew up in Arkansas. Uh, been a mallard purist pretty much ah. my whole life. My family was, the, you know, we, we'd go stand by a tree and chase a, chase a green-headed duck. But when I went to school, <clears throat> doing my graduate work, that's when the whistling duck started showing up in Memphis. And I was actually doing a master's. I wasn't doing a waterfowl project at the time and started seeing these. And I was absolutely captivated by them. I thought they were super cool. Uh, my my PhD was actually on winter mallard physiology, some stress physiology and stuff like that. And then I ended up taking this job at, at CBU and we're primarily a teaching school. So I'm teaching throughout the winter. It's really hard to do research and teach yeah, at the same yeah. time at, at that kind of level. So I needed to find a new model. I knew I wanted to try and find something with waterfowl, but something that undergraduates could get involved yeah. in, right? Something pretty easy. Nest box projects are easy for undergrads for them to look into. And so I had a couple options. I had wood ducks, but then I was like, wait, what about these whistling ducks? Yeah. And then we started. I started delving into the research, trying to find a little bit more about them. There's not much there, especially this far north. So it's kind of a wide open blank canvas for us to start asking questions, some basic questions that we can now hopefully build off of. I think we're starting to get a little bit of a picture uh, for at least the reproductive side, uh, but like habitat use, they're hard. One of the things I didn't mention with habitat use with them, they're nocturnal. Hmm. And what do you they mean will, by that? They will nocturnally feed consistently. Okay. So it makes it really hard to just do normal observations about habitat use. So crepuscular too, so dawn and dusk, but they feed heavily at night. And that's something that's been document, documented from up here all the way through Texas and into Mexico. And so I want to talk about the food habits now. You, okay. There's a great segue into that. What do we know about what they uh, what they, what they prefer to eat? What's their the range of their diet? Tell us about that. Historically, seeds like wild grass seeds. And I won't even say moist soil seeds. Yes, moist soil seeds are a big deal, but they eat Bermuda grass seeds as well as wild millets and things like that. Love that. But they've really, really, really grown to love modern cereal crops. Yeah. They like rice. Yeah. They like corn. They like millet. They like milo yeah. as well. A matter of fact, so much so that we see them sitting on grain barges. Yeah. Yeah, There's I've heard a lot of stories about that. Uh, and if you go to the right location on Google Earth, you can find some of those grain elevators along the Mississippi River, and, and you can look at pictures through time, and you can see thousands upon thousands of little black dots right there along the shoreline, right. black-bellied whistling ducks, right? Mm -hmm. Show up on on, uh, on that kind of uh, aerial, aerial imagery. It's pretty fascinating to see that. Uh, what do we think? Uh, so anything else about... That would be unique about that. Are they grazers? Do they graze a little bit on green vegetation? Any of that kind, kind of stuff? Of primarily kind of? just seeds more than anything. Okay. What most of the diet studies are showing. Less than 10% okay. animal okay. in their diet. Some studies even like 97% seeds and, and vegetation. I, I think I read something um, that like even, even the ducklings, they'll eat invertebrates early first few weeks, but they pretty quickly shift to a plant-based diet. Right, right. right. Yep. Um, and... Well, since we're talking about what they eat, what do you know about how they taste as table fare? I have not had the luxury, but I've heard that they're phenomenal. Oh, there you go. Uh, very, very good table fare. That is actually a hunt I'm hoping to get scheduled in the near future. Yeah. Uh, try and go to Florida or something like that. Yeah. Or, or, Louis, or, Louisiana. or Louisiana. I've seen people yes. shooting them down there. And... Um, 
So yeah, we'll get to the hunting aspect of this here a little bit later on because they are becoming uh, a species that you're seeing more of in the bag of, of hunters. And I guess this is a, a point where I'll say if any of the listeners out there have had the fortune of eating a black-bellied whistling duck and you want to kind of share your take on on whether they're good or bad or how you prepared it, what you'd recommend, uh, send us send us some comments, podcast at ducks.org, podcast at ducks.org. Love to hear what you think about that. And so let's see here. Uh, we've t- Habitat preferences, where are we going to find these birds? We talked about what they eat, but where would people find them if they wanted to, um, not, I'm not talking regionally, but the type of habitats they use? Marsh-like, more, more herbaceous vegetation, grasses, things like that. You're not going to see them in heavily wooded areas. Obviously, they're cavity nesting species, so it seems kind of weird, but they want sparse, you know, trees and, and vertical structure. Uh, so, mud flats as well, things like that. They don't like to swim that much. That's kind of odd for a duck. Yeah. You see them wading a lot. You'll see them in, you know, shallow water, mud flats, things like that. But you you don't see them swim much unless they've got ducklings <laughs> or they're being pushed into the water by something that's making them nervous. Yeah. What one of the other unique things about this species is that it has pretty readily taken to some urban environments. Tell us about that. You can find them in parks. You can find them on golf courses. You can find them at wastewater treatment facilities, yeah. which is where our primary uh, research site is. Um, so readily using all of those habitats, anything that's a marsh-like or lagoon-like habitat, they will readily adapt to. They don't mind humans and human infrastructure too much. Yeah. Unless they start getting harassed, they do react quickly to, to that. Yeah, um, you go down to to uh, New Orleans, and there is a huge, huge population of black bellies. That um, what do they use? Audubon Audubon Park is that where people can find them? And then yes, wh- right what? across the street from Tulane. Okay. Yep. So you can you can see them there. They stack up in there um, in really high numbers, ten, fifteen thousand in the winter. Um, and they'll sit there all day. And one thing that's kind of cool, we mentioned the nocturnal feeding. Mm-hmm. They will fly in at daylight when they've been feeding in the grain elevators and grain yeah. lots and things like that across the river. Wow. Not unlike some of the other ducks that we hunt, right? Right. They, they go out and feed in some of these areas at, at night and then come back uh, to the to the safety of other areas in the morning. Right, right. And Paul Link has some incredible anecdotal stories about some of this stuff, too. It's really fun to get him going because he's been chasing these things around for a while. Yeah, we'll we'll have to do that. I remember being in New Orleans at one time, and you hear these birds. You hear them whistling, and you look up. It's right at at sunset, and it's just line after line of them flying, I guess, out towards those grain elevator Mm -hmm. areas. So it's it's pretty cool uh, in that regard. You know, a couple of things that I believe we skipped in terms of their breeding ecology. I'm kind of looking at a list here that we had made. What do we know about, let's say, re-nesting, double brooding? It's a kind of tropical, subtropical uh, species. Anything worth adding there? They will re-nest. We know that. Um, I've seen our birds nest at least twice. Uh, in boxes that we have, they'll move box if they feel like something happened to that one. I have read where they will double brood. It's rare though. I don't think that's something you're going to see very common, but they will even re-nest up to three times if they fail. I mean, we can see that in our nesting data is you'll get one big bout of nesting. And then when those start to hatch, you'll start to see a second big bout of nesting. And then now we're in almost our third bout. Okay. Is there nesting, nesting period? Is there nesting pretty synchronous among that population that you're studying here in Memphis? For the most part, yes. I think, I mean, because we'll get a few early nesters, as I mentioned. I mean, we get some that will nest as early as uh, into March. But most of them peak is the end of April, 
or end of May, excuse okay. me, early June. Okay. That's when you start to see peak. All right. right. And and just a clarification of a term that I, I, I guess two terms, synchronous, um, uh, synchronous is I, what I was just asking is like, do they all nest at about, start nesting at about the same time? Yep. But then the other thing was double brooding. Uh, define that for us. That's where they hatch, have a successful nest. And then while they still have juveniles running around, they will actually start a second nest, which is kind of wild to think of because it takes them two months post-hatch to do that. So they're nesting while they have a brood swimming around somewhere close by. So that's that's impressive to see that happen, but it, apparently it does. Yeah. The other thing that's unique about this species that we haven't talked about yet is its, its molt cycle. Tell us how it differs from a lot of the other ducks and how it may be similar to, to some of the geese that we have. It's just one molt cycle, right? It looks the same all year round. It doesn't go into a... Uh, a, a basic plumage into that brown drab plumage like most of our ducks you think about in the summer mm-hmm. and then yep. then molt into the pretty colors in the in the winter for breeding but uh yeah same molt and we don't know a whole lot about the molt cycle exactly when it happens what about their flightless i mean that, that flightless stage is that what you're saying we don't know when don't that happens really know exactly really? a whole lot about it i mean i i believe i've seen it a few times with a uh, duck with a brood okay so post hatching when those ducklings are flightless, I think sometimes they'll move into that phase then. But hmm. very interesting, and and so no evidence. Well, I guess this is, and I was going to ask if there's any evidence of like molt migrations for any of these species or any of the, the birds that may have been unsuccessful or any of the non-breeders. But we probably don't know. That's what I'm we hearing. We don't really know. And normally a molt migration, they're going to go to an area with high in inverts to yeah. get all that protein. Yeah, and these guys don't really. Even when they're jumping into high protein demand times and and parts of their life cycle, they don't seem to source that out, you know, specifically. Even females that are building eggs, hmm. they still don't increase their animal, you know, percent of their diet by by much at all. Yeah, so there's still a lot to be learned about this uh, this species, and so you have a a, a great opportunity through your your school and the the undergraduate work. I want to take a few minutes here to give you an opportunity to talk about some of the work that your undergraduates are doing. Uh, just to kind of highlight some of those different, uh, some of the different questions that you're asking. And, you know, people want to hear more about this. You can, or see some of this, you can go look up the video on Ducks Unlimited's YouTube channel. It's out there. But just kind of highlight some of the work that your undergraduates are doing right now. Right. In the past, kind of one of the first questions we had was we started throwing bands on them. We're doing tarsus bands so little red leg bands as well so you can id them in a city park or something like that letter number combination on that band. three number code on it red bottom to top and you can report that to reportband.gov and they can send me a a, you know an an email that says hey we saw one of your birds so and so but one of the big things we're wanting to do is just tell if it's the same birds coming back we mentioned the size discrepancy between new orleans and up here and so i didn't know if it was site fidelity Or was it some type of like dominance displacement? So where bigger, tougher birds are just pushing juvenile birds or weaker birds, you know, to the extremes of their range. And we're getting consistent band recoveries and band returns. Not a lot, but I mean, we still get 25 to 30% of our birds come back every year. Yeah. When you say band returns, you're not talking about harvesting. I'm not talking about harvest. I'm talking about recites for us. Recites or recaptures. Okay. So... With that code, we can go around with spotting scope. We can, when they start coming back in the uh, early spring, we go out with spotting scope and, and long lens camera, and we start taking pictures and trying to find our birds that came back and survived the winter. And uh, interestingly, there's a guy here in the 
in the building who has sighted one of your birds. He wants to talk to you, incidentally. You know, he took a picture of it. And if anyone out there sees one of these birds, it has this little plastic, this little tarsal band on it with the, the, the letter number combination. They can submit that to the, the to the bird banding lab. They can, yep. That, and that's uh, reportband.gov. It's the same place you would go if you're going to report a, a harvested band. Uh, you can, I've never actually seen one or observed one and then reported that that uh, tarsal band, but uh, that observation, but people can do that. And, and so then what's the important thing when they're reading it? They- Bottom to top. They read it bottom to top. Bottom to top. Ours are red with white lettering. So that's distinguishing our population away from, say, some of the ones that Paul has been putting on in Louisiana. His, I believe, are yellow with black lettering. Okay. Something. But there's regional, there's different color ones, each one to a different region that the birds were banded. Um, So kind of a cool way for us to get a general idea of population dynamics. What are some of the other questions that your undergraduate students are trying to answer? So that was one of the big ones. Then the other ones was kind of the thing we've been getting at is how successful are they this far north reproductively? Right, so we actually do have a general idea of clutch size. It's pretty similar to their native clutch size. Brood parasitism rates seem to be really high here, and it's kind of strange because we have a lot of wood ducks, right, that which would be using similar, you know, cavities or even um, the boxes. We don't get much wood duck use in our boxes. Really, they seem to really use natural cavities in the area because there's a large population of wood ducks in yeah. the same area. But we don't get many of them in the boxes. But the whistling ducks seem to really, really. You think it's dive a competition thing? You no, think, no, no. Because the wood ducks would start earlier, and so we're not getting abandoned nests. Oh, okay. Uh, so normally, and you don't that, see, yeah, and the black bellies wouldn't be here at that time. Right, right. So normally, like when we do get wood ducks, they'll initiate first of March, sometimes even the last little bit of February, and they're done by the time the whistling ducks get here. Um, there's a little bit of overlap where it comes into. The big issue as far as competition for nesting sites is when wood ducks or hooded meganders will also use the boxes when they re-nest. Okay. If they have a failed attempt, then they're competing. Okay. Um, and those nests tend to not do well. Are you doing any studies of uh, on the wood ducks? Probably not because it's so hard to catch or to, we to locate those. We don't have many using them. Right. Yeah. But, but I was thinking about, cavities. you know, yeah, natural cavities. It's really, really difficult to find those, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's not like you can put radios on them. I mean, I guess you can, but again, you're dealing with that backpack limitation and I guess right. you could use some in- implants, but. Uh, plants for wood ducks, I think they've they've moved to bibs. Okay. Is a big thing they've been doing. I know that uh, Illinois has done that before. Okay. And had some good success with that, but. Well, right now, we're just trying to figure out what's going on with the whistling ducks. Yeah. And the other cool thing that I like about what you're doing with this, uh, with with your your program there is, and of course, you love ducks, appreciate that, and you're introducing undergraduate students who may not be going to, may not pursue a career right. in, in anything related to wildlife management, wildlife ecology, but you're using black-bellied whistling ducks and the ecological questions surrounding them to train those students on other uh, on, on the things that will be of interest to their chosen career path. So like uh, human physiology or something. Physiology. Talk about that a little bit. Right. Yeah. So we've got uh, two projects right now looking at immunocompetence and basically stress. So as the breeding season goes on, it's thought that stress increases, right? If they have a multiple failed nest attempts, they're more stressed by the time they try the third time or something yeah. like that. So we're pulling blood and looking at um, some blood measures that would – be reflective of stress in the birds. So I've yeah. got two students doing some of that. And then I also have one doing some hormone work that the the hormone that's normally 
associated with parental care. It's normally really high in females when they're incubating. We're looking to see is it the same in the males at the same time since the males are incubating as well. And so I try to pick a project that the student takes some ownership in, right? Something that really interests them. I found that that definitely helps them uh, stay on task a little better. Yeah, and you can see and hear from some of those students, your current students right now on that YouTube video, and they did a fantastic job. And I, I said at that time, and, and we do want to do this, we'll try to get them back in the spring or something like that after they've collected their data and kind of done the analysis. We'll have them here in the studio and just give them an opportunity to talk about what they found and then kind of reflect on it. Did they have any prior experience or introduction to waterfowl and wetlands? I know some of them did not. And and I think that kind of experience and how they, um, what they, what they took from it kind of personally outside of the professional development, development I think would be would be pretty cool to hear about. So we'll get them in here later on. All right. Yeah, I think the idea was just to garner an appreciation for, for wildlife and waterfowl, yeah. you know beyond what they're used to seeing at the park. Well, and I saw their reactions to being out there and the fun that they were having. So I know you're succeeding in, in, a, lot of those, oh, in you. a lot of those ways. So that's great. Uh, let's go back to the bird here a little bit, talking about its its lifespan, survivorship, survival rates. What do we know about any of that type of stuff? What is that? Let's see. Published longest lifespan, eight years. Longest lifespan is eight years. Average annual survival Depends on the study. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a, Give me an average so, or a range. Uh, Texas did a study in uh, late 70s, I believe. Okay. Was that right? That, 50, wasn't, that wasn't Dale James, was that it? That may have been Dale. No, I, think that no, I was kind of being funny there. He wasn't late 70s. Oh, he was no, what was it? No, when, <laughs> I'm trying to find the study. I don't know who that was. That's the same Dr. Dale James that uh, that used to work for DU. He's now with the Welder Wildlife uh, Foundation, but he did... I can't. I guess it would have been his master's research that he did on uh, focusing on black bellies down in Texas. Right. So right. yeah, we had a great conversation at one of the the duck conferences talking about yeah. some whistling duck stuff. Uh, that study in the seventies yeah. said fifty percent. Okay. Mortality. So not yeah. exactly survival. Fifty yeah. percent mortality yeah. uh, among their population. Small sample size. I think it was maybe a hundred ducks or something like that. Yeah. The newest one that came out with uh, it was a paper by uh, Bradley Cohen. Just put that out, and their survival rates like point, or so it's like eight five, like eighty five percent. Eighty five percent survival. That's what his is showing. Wow, I saw something in one of oh. the books that you and I were both, I think, happened to be reading leading up to this, and it, like average annual survival, pretty much for both sexes, was right around fifty percent. That might have been that other study, but then right. the more recent. But were, so. I would say that based on our band return rates, and I, I think we get a lot of site fidelity. I think we have higher mortality rates than. 85%. Really? Yeah. Now, site fidelity, Earth. another term that I just want to take an opportunity to, to define. I think most of our listeners by now are going to know that. But if we have any new listeners, what do we mean by site fidelity? Returning to the same place year yeah. after year. Um, and this would be for breeding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know if there's if there's high if we don't know if there's high site fidelity to any of their wintering locations yet. We don't right? know or stopover sites or anything like that. Yeah. We don't know any of that. You could also use uh philopatry. Kind of some people will use those terms interchangeably. I generally would associate philopatry with going back to natal. Yeah. Grounds, where they were right? born. Where right. they were born. Yeah. Right. So so we're saying site fidelity. So basically just saying we banded birds in this spot last year and a bunch of those yeah. birds came back the next year. And we spot. see that. We see that to a large degree in for many waterfowl species, there's some variation around that. And you can you see it in in all sorts of animal species, and it makes sense, right? If you were successful, if you survived at a given location the previous year or the previous season, and if there were 
there and there are threats. There are things. There are people. There are a lot of things working against all these critters. And if they're in a location where they survive and happen to meet all their resource needs, why wouldn't they go back? Right. Right. Yep. So, That's exactly right. So yeah, we're learning a lot about that in in many different ways these days. That's a lot of uh, there's going to be some exciting conversation to be had about all of those types of things going forward, uh, related to survival and mortality. And let's talk about harvest. You you can harvest them. Now, I read something, tell me, see if you remember about this, that there was a time where it was, the harvest of this species was prohibited here in the States, and it wasn't too long ago, right? I think they switched that, what, mid-80s? I, I think so. Like 1984 is what stuck in my mind. Um, and I, I don't, but it, yeah, it was, I guess, a low population level, and um, yeah, harvest was restricted on it. But now, it's a harvestable species. Uh, I've had people ask me, what's the bag limit on, on whistling ducks? I'm like, well, six, right? Not, if it's not specified, it's six ducks. Yeah, yeah I mean, for the right, Mississippi yeah. Central Mississippi Flyway, flyways, it, right. it would be the, the maximum daily bag for ducks, right? right? Um, so if you can, in Mississippi Central Flyway, if you can get six, go for it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and as we mentioned before, apparently they're really good table fare. Yeah, so. yeah. What do we know about harvest rates, if anything? My guess is not a whole lot, but then also what do we know about harvest in terms of the total number of these birds that are right. We don't know much about rates because, of we mentioned, the, the low band return rates yeah. on these guys. But we do know some estimates of harvest in the big states, so Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, yeah. that do, you know, you hear about them shooting them. Uh, 2010, 2011... Harvest rate was around 17,000. Yeah. It's actually been dropping, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of uh, wonder if it if it's not, and, and even the high survival rate, I wonder if it's not related to their adaptation, exploitation of some of these urban environments. Are they learning that quick? Are they conveying that information that quick? How all that's working would be fascinating to kind of unravel. Right. Well, that's, and that's, I've mentioned some anecdotal stories again, you know, talking with Paul, he was telling me, that the city parks in New Orleans and Baton Rouge and Slidell fill up two weeks before duck season. Is that right? He said, as soon as people start hitting the marsh with mud motors and things like that and start going to brush blinds, the ducks ducks start showing up in city parks. Yeah. Yeah, they move quick, too. And it's almost like these ducks don't want to get shot. Yeah, imagine that. Uh, So similar to what we've been seeing with the Canada geese, right? The the cool studies in Chicago and things Mm -hmm. like that. The habitat's better outside of the city. Yeah. Winnipeg is another place where they're seeing that. Dallas or in some of the areas in Texas, Kevin Cry was telling me about that. They're seeing, and even mallards, I think he was saying, are taking some of these urban areas where hunting is prohibited. I saw it in Columbus, Ohio as well. Way back, you know, ducks aren't dumb. No, even if you go to the Memphis Zoo, notice in the winter, there's a lot more mallards in the Memphis Zoo than there is in the summer. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Uh Uh, Okay, did we cover the harvest? Like, what are the harvest numbers? The numbers, so, as I mentioned, 2010, 17,000, 2015, about 14,000. Okay. Between those three primary states and then about 10,000 in 2022. So going down, I think a couple things. I definitely think the ducks are adapting to it. And from low band return rates, we know that they're not getting shot. They're really good at avoiding it. And number two, we did, I mentioned this, is they had that disease outbreak in, in 2020, early 2020, which definitely knock some of the numbers down a little bit in some of those areas that were yeah. taking. taking and that shouldn't numbers. be surprising, right? Because we're talking about a disease, it was cholera, avian yep. cholera, and 
the denser the concentration, the longer that high-density concentration occurs, the more likely there is, I mean, if there is a bird that becomes infected, it's going to be transmitted through a high-density population, not too surprising. Classic spread. Yeah, yep. classic spread of a disease through a dense population. So, uh, And I expect we'll see that periodically through time with those type of situations, right? Right, and that's actually something that I'm hoping I'll get an undergrad that's interested in doing is actually looking for antibody titers uh, yeah. for cholera and seeing... To see if any of your birds mm-hmm. here had been exposed to cholera right. and survived yep. through it. Yeah, okay. Because I would assume they have. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. What about population size? I want to try to start wrapping this up here. Population size, what do we know about that? I kind of laugh whenever I was reading the book. Um, uh, you know, the population range that they, <laughs> that they offered here. But uh, it was somewhere between... 100,000 and 1 million, I think, is what was offered. <laughs> right, right. What do in, we know? US, do we have any better information now? Not really. <laughs> no, the, what is it? Um, some of uh, the Cornell Lab and, and Audubon Society go together and put these big, and I the, the red list or the... Yeah, IUCN, yep. Puts out the list of kind of population status. They estimate on the worldwide level, so we're looking between both the northern population and the southern Another very large range, yeah. 1.2 or something like that million to 2 million birds worldwide. Yeah. That's a big range. Too. It is, yeah. We don't know. They're hard to count, um, right? They're not in our traditional surveys. We're not, you know, you're not counting them out of an airplane like we would normally. So it's kind of hard to pull that that data. Yeah. Can't do a Lincoln-Peterson estimator on them because we're not getting enough band recoveries, right? Right. Yep. Um Interesting. Now, I, I guess it's probably also worth just discussing. Is it a? It's not a species of of concern from a population downward trajectory. It's the opposite, right? Right. At least in North America. Yeah. Okay. Maybe in Mexico, the population may be going down, yeah. as I kind of mentioned. But, but in North America, these things are exploding as as, as their popularity is too, as they show up. Yeah. Because I kind of laugh and joke because they're very different from a mallard. Yeah. You know what people are used to, and they got a lot of character to them. Yeah, I can only imagine what a lot of people, and I've heard, I don't have to imagine, I've heard people tell this story or ask these questions whenever they first see it. It's like this this new species of duck that shows up on their backyard pond. It's so exciting. It's a bird they've never seen before. And I'm sure you get tons of calls. We get a lot of calls here, get some photos. How how cool is that? I mean, do you like that people get so excited about this new bird? You're studying this new bird, but then you get people that call you and want to know about it. How cool is that? It's awesome. I mean, and I, I was captivated by them. I mean, as soon as I jumped into the system and started kind of learning a lot more about them, they're, they're so unique and so different from what I learned as a, you know, what a duck species would be. Now we start to see something that's very different in our backyards. And so that's been really exciting to see. And then you see other people kind of getting infatuated with it as well. And like, man, what is this? This is yeah. really neat. Yeah. And the fact they use urban environments. So you're starting to see them show up and, and draw attention. Yeah. They've definitely adapted to the landscapes that we've kind of helped create. And and I have to imagine that warming winter temperatures is not hurting their deal at all. For sure. You know, for so, sure. Or, and warming temperatures in general, but, but certainly, uh, certainly in winter, uh, maybe... Um, I mean, I guess they are sensitive to that winter temperature, but there has to be something related to that winter, uh, that threshold, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's something pushing them out because in their other native ranges, they don't migrate. They might migrate migrate slightly for better habitat for breeding versus feeding, but yeah, it's it's more of just a habitat change more than an actual migration, you know, 
for a lot of the other species we talk about, NAWAMP goals, uh, North American Waterfowl Management Plan, population goals, you know, because we want to <clears throat> we want to make sure that we um, maintain birds above some level. Uh, but this is a species for which we don't have a NAWAMP goal. They're one of these birds that, you know, kind of for the longest time was was just occurred in the in North America, was at the edge of their range. Now it's becoming a larger portion of its range. Uh, we don't have a NAWAMP goal for it, but Will we in the future in some in some other update? I don't know. I, I, there are some. I think they're in some of the tables, maybe recent population estimates or something like that. Right. But I don't believe we have a a goal for them. no no goal. Uh, I know it was in. I think we mentioned this was laughing in the the harvest report. Yeah, they're in the harvest report, but they're lumped under the other ducks uh-huh. at the bottom. So, uh, so they are measured, and they're a noticeable number for a few of those states that we mentioned before: Texas, Louisiana, and Florida. But I, if they continue this population trend, I definitely see them being a lot more on, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife's radar yeah. uh, in the next 10 years. Yeah, there's a couple of things to to unpack there. One is re- with regard to harvest during early teal season, kind of given where they, given the fact that they depart some of these more northern areas earlier at, at the first kind of brush of a cold spell, right. right? And I know some of the southern states that are seeing a growing population of these birds, a breeding population of these birds is kind of advocating for uh, an opportunity for their hunters to harvest them during that teal season. I know those conversations have occurred here over the past few years. I don't know what the latest status of those conversations are, uh, other than to say uh, before, I'm pretty sure that I recall the Fish and Wildlife Service saying that certain conditions have to be met before they would kind of open a season, allow them to be added to that teal season. There's there's a lot of yeah. Kind of specific stuff that has to go on whenever you're dealing with harvest management decisions there. But but the conversation has happened. It is happening. And I think with whistling ducks, it comes back to a similar question with wood ducks during that early teal season. There's there's a possibility they're still breeding. Well, that's true. Or at least rearing a brood yeah. at that point. And so that was kind of, I know that's been a hang up for some people on wood ducks. And I it's something you have to keep in mind when you're thinking about these whistling ducks. But I have been teal hunting and had them come into a teal spread in, yeah, Ar- in yeah, Arkansas. Yeah. And the first time it happened, it was probably 10 years ago. Yeah. Before I even thought anything about it, I was trying to figure out what this thing was that was coming into the decoys, whistling at me. Um, supposedly, they decoy pretty well. Yeah. I can't recall. You know, I hunted in Louisiana, and I have harvested one down there, but I don't remember if it decoyed well or not. But it, again, folks have, have thoughts on whether they decoy well, mm-hmm. send them in. I'm going to ask you to kind of look out 20 or 30 years, the end of your career. What do you think the landscape of black-bellied whistling ducks look, looks like at that time? Do you think we have breeding populations, established large breeding populations in, let's say, Illinois? Um, how far east, west do you think they go? What? Take a guess. I, I do. I think we will. I think you'll see them definitely in southern Illinois. Uh, there are already some, some populations of 20 and 30 birds in that area already, even up as far as almost a Champaign-Urbana. They're seeing, you know, more than one or two up there. We mentioned before that Cheyenne Bottoms in Kansas has a population. As long as they can find the food and that that herbaceous vegetation, you're going to see them. Hmm. As long and as they can, the, they have a wide enough window during that breeding season, right, to be right. able to accommodate their limited cold tolerance. Right, and... Probably shouldn't be a problem. Shouldn't be a problem. It depends on how many times they want to try and nest. Yeah. But, and the other thing is, that, like you said, adapting to, to urban environments so well. Uh, one of the things that I've mentioned to uh, uh, 
Jamie Federson, TWRA, mm-hmm. yeah. he goes, well, these birds are doing really well. Why should I care about a whistling duck? <laughs> I was like, well, you don't want it to be the next resident Canada goose, yeah. right? You don't want them to adapt and end up being a nuisance at that point and bringing that avian cholera into urban environments and yeah. things like that. So trying to figure out getting an, an idea and a grasp on them now might be beneficial later so we don't have to play catch up if they do adapt that well to parks yeah. and golf courses yeah. and things like that. Yeah. And, and I know, Jamie, you asked that question somewhat in a rhetorical fashion or, or because a lot of times when we think about, and DU kind of falls into the same category, and this is where I wanted to go next with regard to where does this species fall on our relative list of priorities? A lot of times we think about that list of priorities being influenced by the population status of it. And we right. oftentimes are most concerned about those species that are on, in decline, right? Right. We're also, we have uh, enhanced concern and pay enhanced attention to those species that are really important from a harvest perspective. But then your point also is that there is this other end of the gradient where birds can become uh, can become an, uh, can be the source of a lot of human-wildlife conflict and, and that's, uh, I'm sure that's the, the nature in, in which, well, yes, the nature in which you and Jamie were having that conversation there. But it's, yeah. uh, it, it's one of those, it's another of the aspects of waterfowl management that we have to be aware of. Now, DU is not heavily involved in the, in the wildlife human conflict arena. Right. That kind of primarily falls to the state and federal agencies that have the authority to, to manage those birds from a habitat perspective. Yeah, if you're dealing with a population that's increasing, like, why do we, we're not going to be tailoring our, our conservation efforts, our habitat work around that particular species right now. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And so I think probably what we would say also from a research perspective within DU is that, yeah, it, it, we need to be aware of it. We need to stay on top of it from an education awareness um, standpoint. And also it's just freaking cool within the waterfowl world. We have this opportunity to understand kind of ecological release if there is something that all of a sudden has allowed this species to expand and and its range and population there's a lot of really interesting questions there so yeah we we're interested in it it's not a high priority from us organizationally in right. terms of science and and research investments but it's really cool it is it's 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 on the radar people are seeing them they're visual i think one of the biggest things at this point is also just you know trying to figure out what habitats they're keying on. That's a big, I think that should be a, a focus in the next 10 years is trying to actually figure out what habitats are allowing them to really, really make this release, this, like yeah. as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and we just don't know. Yeah. I mean, we got some ideas, but. I want to come back to the final point here, which I referenced before we went to the break, which is their use of artificial nest boxes. Are you hearing people that are wanting to uh, construct boxes, artificial nest boxes specifically for black-bellied whistling ducks? And if so, like, what do you tell them? Do they need to make dimensions for that box different from what they would do for wood ducks? A whistling duck, a black-bellied whistling duck will use a wood duck box, allowing the hole size, the entrance hole is big enough for it to go in. Normally for a wood duck, you know, you might see three to five, like a, a three by five oval going in. For a whistling duck, we generally would say four by six. So a little bit bigger. Wood duck, I mean, you can make whistling duck boxes. The big difference with them is the inside dimension is 11 by 11 instead of like 9 by 9. Okay. And then you're still going about that same, two, you know, 20 inches to 2 foot deep, right? Um, 
but if you don't want to build one, I mean, we've built them out of rough cut Cypress. Yeah. They work great. Um, if you don't want to build one and you're not in a super, super hot environment, there's a plastic boxes you can buy online called duck huts. Okay. That they readily use as well. That's what we're using as well. If you've got them out in direct sunlight, they can get a little warm though. Okay. So, th- th- and y'all are studying that, right? You're looking just at- just finished the, that. Oh, you just finished it just, on the, the differential, the difference in temperature between a wood box and the plastic mm-hmm. box. And then what is, what effect, if any, there is on incubation patterns or nest right. success, whatever of the birds, right. right? We'll talk about that later. Let's yes. not get in there Sounds right now. Good. Uh, what I, uh, what about placement of those boxes? Is the guidance pretty much the same as what you, you offer for, for for wood duck box placement? One of the big differences is put it in a more open environment if you can. For black you know, bellies. Right. Okay. You know, if you bury it up in the woods in cover, they won't use it very much. If you can get it kind of maybe in the shade of a tree line, but out from the tree line where it's not going to get full sun all day, um, that's fine. If you got a wooden box, you can put it right out in the middle of, of wherever. You know, near water is always better. All right, something like that, because that's going to help the brood rearing too. But Cool. Anything that we haven't touched yet that – that you think needs to be discussed here that's that would be like, oh, darn, I wish we would have said that. We've covered most of it. I think we've had a pretty good yeah. thorough conversation. Yeah. All right. I just want to make sure because you've talked about these birds a lot. And so I didn't I wanted to make sure that we, we didn't miss a, miss something that is always part of your talking point. So it sounds like we haven't. Um, Jared, thank you. Thank you for being here. We're going to keep you around here a little bit longer today and talk with you a little bit more about this here up, up front. But appreciate all the work that you're doing. Really appreciate the way that you're integrating waterfowl science and study in with your undergraduate programs and exposing people to this great resource and the way it can be a basis for learning about a lot more uh, about scientific topics well beyond just waterfowl. That's pretty cool. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for being a great partner with Ducks Unlimited. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for having me, and thanks for letting me talk about something I'm passionate about. Thanks. And to all of you out there, the listeners, I encourage you to kind of keep an eye out for this for this species. A lot of you have probably seen it. A lot of you will be seeing it some point in the future. Get familiar with it. The black-bellied whistling duck. It's one of the more intriguing, exciting stories in the field of waterfowl management these days. So, uh, So take advantage of it. Be on the lookout for it. Thanks, Jared. Thank you. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Jared Henson with Christian Brothers University. We appreciate his time and joining us here. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, who does a terrific job getting these episodes edited and out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We encourage you to rate and, re- and review the podcast. We thank you for spending your time with us. And we thank you re- for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. 
Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.